Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Jeziorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Sneepon. Happy New Year, Adam. Happy New Year as we enter year... Many. Four? Four? Yeah. Five? That's right, four. Yeah. Four. We, yes, that's right. We started talking about this... Yes. 2020, before the before times... And the first kind of episodes came out in February, the very before times. And yeah, Warriors. 55 episodes is number 55. Number 55, concluding, oh, I don't have the count of the arcs in front of me, but concluding the money, money, money arc. And then we'll move on to something new for the rest of this, for the, as the new year really gets rolling. But today we're going to conclude with a look at research finance, uh, in an issue very familiar to many paleolimnologists out there, that is the funding needed for long-term monitoring programs. That's right. This will be the money, money, money article, uh, not article, topic that is most salient to what this podcast is supposed to be about, <laughs> paleolimnology. Not that the other things don't touch on it and, and certainly encompass far more than just paleolimnologists in the academic world and funding broadly but this one does have a lot of linkages as you say yeah a lot of specific specific ones because um we're talking about work that is very often critical to paleolimnological analyses but uh often falls outside what can be funded by academics themselves in a typical grant slash project cycle yeah, definitely. It is, uh, well, we'll get into that. It, it's hard to find money for monitoring for long term for things that aren't short term projects. And and because of that, uh, those data sets are rare and they're precious where they do exist. And they really are important for contextualizing the reconstructions that don't go back long term, but are inferring those kind of changes as uh, paleolimnology and all of the other paleo environmental sciences rely upon. Yeah, because uh, there are lots and lots of small-scale long-term records out there. Um, and we featured some of them quite prominently in our past episodes from locations such as the Experimental Lakes area, the Dorset Environmental Science Center, and the Cape Bounty Watershed. Um, but really, uh, I guess it's a bit of a blurry subject because I guess there's some confusion or not confusion it's not like the easiest thing to really pin down is what exactly qualifies as a long-term record um and what exactly the distinction between long-term and short-term is um is you know directly affects how it's funded uh long-term monitoring uh continuous monitoring is often reliant on continuous funding or often continuous funding um and so really probably isn't possible to define and is more of a spectrum I think so. In all of those senses, the duration, the nature of the data, uh, who it is that are collecting those data, whether it's the same body that has always been collecting those data or the program has sort of moved around as funding was available and is maybe anchored to some sort of academic unit or university or research program. All of those things can vary. Uh, the the idea that seems to tie them together is the 
idea that there is some sort of long-term monitoring going on and even what is being monitored can vary and change and they can be more experimental like ELA and we'll go into some of the uh, examples in a minute but uh, yeah there is a whole range of things and maybe that's one reason that they don't you know have their own type of funding because they are really quite disparate in uh, in their details and site-specific but I guess the key thing is um the way that they are all similar is they're not ever tied to one particular project. Yeah. Like when we're talking about applying for grants or, um, you know, the individual professor's view of research and what might be long-term, um, when you're talking about employing uh, technicians and doing sampling and data storage over years and years to decades and decades, that is well beyond the scope of what would ever be covered in a very specific grant application. Yeah, or or could be done in those five five years or ten years, whatever it might be, whatever duration that grant project or program is being funded for. It's never going to be long enough for the types of um, questions that can be answered with these kind of long term data. It's not that these data sets can't be used to generate projects and to um, contextualize projects and do those things, but that is not the raison d'être for their existence yeah no instead i guess there's a couple of different key bins that you could lump these records into um i would imagine the biggest one would be long-term monitoring that is performed by government agencies Um, but this is often done out of like a pure measurement interest and just generally collecting lots of data for big reports to inform policy it's not really being done necessarily in a hypothesis testing sort of way and instead the academics that are affiliated with the data in some way can piggyback on that but the 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 hypothesis testing is not the raison d'etre for the records in most cases yeah and, and you could probably even subdivide that down a little bit because there are as you say the government is is really in a business of collecting data right that is one of the main functions of government you know the census data that are collected on demographics and uh, population distribution and all of those different things are one example but there are lots and lots of others and and while census data may be collected you know every what is it seven years is that what we do it in canada something like that in that range doesn't really matter the number there are other data that are collected hourly, right? So if you think of weather data as the the best example of huge government data sets at hundreds of sites across the country, um, they, they are collecting those because they can, because they have to measure them for airplanes and for other types of activities. So those data get stored. Forecasting, yeah, exactly. Those data get stored. And if they're available and you can use them, awesome. But really the point of collecting them is not, to do science with them. On the other hand, there are government agencies, the GS Geological Survey of Canada and other, you know, NOAA in the United States and all of them that, that do have scientists. And so they are collecting data that probably do go into that. Um, but the the point is, is made that there are a lot of data being collected that really don't have much purpose other than to exist. And ultimately inform policy. Sure. Yeah, for sure. I, exactly. I'm, I'm not sure that temperature data in Yellowknife is informing policy all that much, but uh, it's it's there and can be used and gets used a lot, actually. Like you see them all the time in papers and 
people, you know, they're freely available oftentimes, often geotagged, like they're, they're high quality um, data and lots can be done with them. But they're not really like an academic partnership or something like that that uh, is is running that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely falls on the category of like piggybacking of like using the data for science for to, to address scientific questions in a way that you know was not really the initial purpose of maintaining these long 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 term records mm -hmm. and then the uh, other thing uh, on top of that is there are there are probably very specific cases where data are being collected to address some previous um previous environmental concern uh then these would fall under the category of effects monitoring data sometimes those will have pre-impact data but the idea is they're related to some sort of change on the landscape or question about land use or the requirements of that landscape and they can be run by all different stakeholders industry um government so in canada uh, it's a it's a mix the government does some of that uh, like in the oil sands it's the government of alberta that does that but paid by industry and in other areas the industry uh, contract that out to um, like consulting firms but th those are are quite different as well and then also you know um data surrounding military installations hazardous waste disposal sites um you know, big um, effects monitoring projects similar to the giant mine um, um, that we've discussed previously in terms of the long-term environmental impact of that mine and its eventual remediation. And in these kind of cases, the data may be used in research, but in this case, the data collection, although not in, in a similar way, it's not intended for open-ended purposes, but depending on the nature of the beast, um this data is out there and various things can be pulled together depending on what might be needed in a given analysis if you know that you're going to be doing some work in the general vicinity of giant mine or you'll be looking up temperature records from the nearest airport to the sites that you're looking at and things like that as you kind of put whatever pull whatever you can together to get a provide more context for the trend that a particular that may be being evaluated in a particular study. For sure. You may be tracking reclamation and its impacts, but those data can be used for other things uh, under certain circumstances and probably related to different licensing and all of that sort of, uh, that sort of consideration. So, yeah. So lots and lots of uh, data is being collected. And in many cases, um, there might not necessarily be a huge amount being done with it in the moment, but there are definitely large stores of data available to be tapped um, around Canada and the world writ large. So we're going to do a callback here to a uh, figure produced by John Small. It is in his textbook. It's originally published in the Journal of Environmental Monitoring and Assessment. Um, Yes, I'm not sure what I don't have the paper in front of me right now, but the data runs from 1981 to 1983, and basically he did a analysis of all the studies that were published in the journal over those 12 years to see how long a data set they were dealing with. I think he did redo this. I think this has been redone by 
Neil McAlooty or Emily Stewart or Jamie Summers or someone like that. I, I vaguely recall seeing a revision of this to like 2016, maybe. So there, this the trend holds. Sorry. The trend holds, but basically the take-home number was over 70% of papers published were based on observations of one year's duration or less. That's a lot. That, that In a journal dedicated to environmental monitoring and assessment. Right. Yeah. <laughs> monitoring. Yeah. For sure. This is not paleo. This is not JOPL, um, where obviously the time frames are going to be different, but but those are not measurements, right? This is a, a journal dedicated to going out and measuring data. And most measurement studies, like whole publications, are under a year. That's pretty crazy. And yeah, and then when you extend it to uh, four years, i.e. what can be collected during the course of a single PhD, you know that PhD you know. students? You have four years. <laughs> four years of data. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, of data collection. Um, and <laughs> you totally derailed me there. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so we're up, you know, well, you know, over 80% kind of thing. And um, that is interesting in and of itself and kind of like tails into the idea of how valuable these long-term records really are and it's like a built-in tragedy to all of it because um you know the vast majority of studies may not use them um but they're incredibly valuable and they always seem to be on the chopping block as they don't always seem to fit neatly into any particular jurisdiction yeah yeah it, it is interesting it just shows how precious those those data sets are and it, it is a, a tragedy that this that is the the deal it, they're always uh on the edge like the, i don't know i'm maybe one or two and i guess we'll go through a list of some of them um maybe one or two are well funded uh but the vast majority are always uh, on the knife's edge of of being shut down forever and this uh, resource that really doesn't exist elsewhere getting just cut off and lost and it kind of tails into like the hypothesis testing of like, so like the shorter term studies, you're addressing a question. It's like we're going out for four years to see what has changed in relation to an event, uh, some sort of recovery from mine, a dam going in, things like that. Um, and you just do a potentially a couple of years of measurements um, where it kind of falls in between the cracks a little bit is, okay, your four years are up. Let's keep on measuring that lake. Or let's keep on measuring, you know, that patch of forest or whatever it might be. You know, the question has already been answered, but we've got four years of data. Let's keep on going um, and just build on that. And that becomes actually quite hard to do because to NSERC, um, as like a, one of the main funding agencies for um, academics in Canada, they're not particularly interested in funding just plain old monitoring. They want to be training students and to be scientists, and that involves hypothesis testing. So just going out and doing the technical work of, you know, collecting samples, measuring samples, really falls outside the purview of what they're interested in funding. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's very similar everywhere else. Uh, so as if you think back to when we talked about um, fat cat professors and how you fund research, that that was a big one, right? Government uh, funding as a, a a source for doing kind of the bigger picture stuff not tied to very specific so you know NSERC would be 
the thing that would be the most broad, the most uh, available to do kind of a whole range of different stuff. And they're not interested in it. So what? where does the money come from? Where do you fund these types of operations from? There aren't going to be billionaires coming to drop off, you know, big fat checks uh, on these kind of projects, or at least not thus far. And, or, and even if that they were those kind of individual, well, I guess billionaire level donations, um, you know, like um, it becomes much harder to put your name in lights above a database than it yeah. is above um, a building. So you don't really have the the John Smith database of the limnological <laughs> record from Crystal Lake. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that just simply does not exist. Um, so the way it work really shakes out is uh, government is often really the only real source of money, um, you know, whether directly or indirectly through uh, enforcement on private businesses related to licensing, as Josh measured in the first segment. Um and basically, uh, you have these small pockets where, for various happenstances, you know, someone was able to get the ball rolling and then endeavored to get the ball rolling for years and years and years. And that's how many of these long-term data sets have come to be. And how they, they end up being so continuous, right? Like, it, it just, the ball has to roll a little bit. And often they're not... They're not multi-million dollar operations. You don't need huge amounts. So it can be just, oh, I got another can't little pot to do it. Yeah, exactly. And and that probably keeps them going because if they were multi-million dollar types of operations, they would not have found the money. But also, you know, they're they're not that sexy sometimes. Uh, you know, the, the philanthropist who wants to donate a big chunk, um, it, it may just not be on their radar as... Uh, as um, being kind of the cachet. And so I thought maybe it'd be worth running down a bit of a list of some of the locations that we're like, we're definitely a strong personal bias here. There are many of these around the country, but we've got a, an Ontario focus in our own work, or at least in my work, more, almost exclusively. Josh is a bit more varied than I am, but uh, there are some long-term monitoring programs that we're familiar with. And there are also some that are, you know, famous on a global paleolimnological level. But um, I guess to the general public, I would guess that the most famous area in our neck of the woods would be, well, not in our neck of the woods, but in terms of like the Canadian news reading public would be the experimental lakes area. Absolutely. I, I would imagine if you just found someone on the street, most of them would have heard of none of them. And if anyone had heard of a single of these sites, the only one would be ELA. And in large part because um, it is had a you know it's probably like ten years ago now there was a huge save the ELA campaign. Yep. Um, so the experimental lake areas is in northwestern uh, Ontario. For those that are not familiar with it, um, located in between um, Kenora in Ontario and Winnipeg in Manitoba. Uh, and the records there began in 1968. Yeah, so not that old, you know, um, but it's a massive, you know, it's a big facility. They do uh, work that that is 
um, a higher ticket, right? A, a lot of different things there. They have their monitoring program, but they also have people come and do research. Like full on, on specific like projects. Yep. In manipulations. So they have a very broad portfolio that can, you know, weather the really poor times and then have the really boom years as well when people have uh, project specific money. Um, but as Adam said, there was this Save ELA campaign that began a little more than um, 10 years ago now as the uh, federal government, because the facility was run by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada, as the funding was pulled from that. Uh, it took some time, a couple of years, in fact, or almost a couple of years before it became taken over by uh, or led by a partnership uh, that is spearheaded by the what is IISD, International Institute for Sustainable Development, I believe, something like that. That sounds right. That's, that's that um, uh, the funding comes from a broad package that includes the provincial governments uh, and some maybe some federal money. I'm not sure, but it is led by this um, this private group. Yeah. And saved and they did save the LA. And, and not only that, I think it's had a massive, res- you know, like it, its popularity has grown probably or its notoriety. Yeah. And so you think of like some of the work that it was done there. I think we've mentioned it in previous episodes. So it would have been uh, a key factor in the late 60s, early 70s in identifying phosphorus as the like key um, culprit in nutrient enrichment of lakes. And so there's some very, very famous experiments there where they basically split a lake in the middle with a curtain and enriched either side of the curtain with one side with just nitrogen and the other side with nitrogen and phosphorus. And so you get this nice pea green soup on one side of the curtain and like a very famous photograph. Um, yeah, and the detergent wars. Yeah, exactly. Experimental manipulations related to acidification to uh, track the changes in the fish and whether or not, th- and then that led into further experiments to look at the recovery from acidification over time. Um, more recently, a lot of their experimental work is related to oil sands and, yep. um, plastics, microplastics and yeah. So it's going strong to this day. Um, and, um, has definitely had its ups and downs in terms of the tenuous nature of its funding. Yeah. It's not only that, it's been a training ground for, you know, all some of the great Canadian limnologists. Uh, over those uh, since 1968 so over that time period a lot of people have worked there a lot of people have trained uh, by people who work there so yeah it is uh, kind of the jewel of canadian limnology um, a little bit later you would have the turkey lake watershed uh, its monitoring program began in 1979 and but it is one that did not survive for the long term it ended Around that same time, around like 2010, 2011, I believe. Yeah, something in that range. Maybe a little later, I'm not sure. Kind of maybe slow, gradual decline. So that's one where you have like 30 plus years of data. And then if it was ever to start again, there would be a clear break, which is like one of those things in terms of the lost value over time um, because you no longer have a continuous record. So that would be a key example of that. Uh, in and around Sudbury, you have what they refer to as the intensive and extensive um, lakes that are monitored. monitored. Um, again, there, it's very closely tied to the acidification and metal contamination impacts related to the Sudbury smelters. 
the next one on the list probably uh, naturally is Dorset um, and at the Environmental Science Center there, though perhaps you should uh, you should talk about that given that you spent some time at the Dorset facility. Yeah, so that is in the Muskoka region of Ontario. Uh, originally, the, historically, it's like an offshoot of the Sudbury, uh, monitoring work done out of Sudbury, I think his, is what it began as. It dates back to, I think, the earliest of the long-term lake monitoring records there is 1975, 1976, something like that. Um, but all of the nine Dorset A lakes, their records start in the late 70s, and they have been monitored fairly intensely, bi-weekly, through the ice-free season, going back to sometime in the late 70s. The exact start date varies a little bit from lake to lake, um, but that is a serious, um, seriously dense and long data set. So yeah, pushing 50 years, pushing 50 years. That's a lot of data. Yep. And, and intense too. Yeah. That, that's the key. One of the keys of the Dorset data sets, though the, there has been some decreases in uh, not the monitoring, I don't think, but in the uh, size of the facility and the staff uh, more recently, again, related to priorities of the current provincial government, because that is an Ontario project. Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, <clears throat> again, these, these records only become more valuable over time as they become longer. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, and so that's a good kind of Ontario example or a series of examples, the ones that are kind of closest to us. But there are there are some facilities, as Adam said, that are sort of world renowned that that the fact that we know about them, there are undoubtedly many smaller kinds of operations out there across the whole planet. The, the ones that kind of um, get listed as the 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 examples the pillars of these long term monitoring are are more akin to the ELA sort of uh, example the ones that uh, make it into textbooks and produce innumerous uh, graduate students that become professors and continue to work in those areas and so why don't we just go through a couple of the big names of those uh, in the United States they have the uh, the sort of collection or network of sites that are referred to as the LTER, L-T-E-R, Long-Term Ecological Research Network. Um, and so this is an enormous number of different long-term data set stations, some of which you probably have never heard of, uh, and others that you probably have. So they include things like uh, Hubbard Brook uh, and the experimental forest in the Hubbard Brook uh, area. There is so that's in New, New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, there's the North Temperate Lakes um, example, um, whatever monitoring program data set. Uh, there are there's an Arctic one. There's a series of different stations. I'm not sure what the the final number or the the current number is for all of the Elter uh, sites. Uh, but it is uh, above a dozen. You know, there are a, more than a dozen of these locations, and their range or their uh, durations, and whether they're continuing 
varies again from starting in the 80s to starting later in the late 90s at all uh, and some that are very young and hopefully continuing it really is this collection of different long-term monitoring data most of them government uh, facilitated that span forests aquatic ecosystems marine uh, environments all sorts of different areas so elter is this kind of umbrella for a number of the sort of best known United States uh, long-term data sets. See, and that's pretty interesting because compared to the Ontario and Canada lists that we do, like they all very, you know, it's one of those things where everyone within that family knows each other and there's a lot of communication between places like Sudbury, Dorset and the LA, but it doesn't have the same kind of, I guess, collective network aspect to it that Elter does. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly how the, like, what the um, Elter part does. So sort of how the network is organized or uh, the the sort of leadership aspect around it. Like, there is a leadership sort of group. There's, a, I think the term is probably council or something like that, that uh, oversees and uh, kind of facilitates the network itself. I don't think the the goal is to specifically, uh, you know, structure how one program is done or any of the priorities. It's more about the whole uh, that is made up of these different parts and seeing, basically seeing that these continue to be funded. I imagine a good deal of it has to do with um, uh, securing funding for the network sites or making sure that they're connected into any kind of centralized funding, but then also promoting all of the amazing things that they do as a group so that the really well-known ones also feed into the promotion of the ones that are a little bit younger, or maybe a little bit less well, uh, less well-known. In the, and then kind of against like, I guess, bigger picture in terms of global perspective, um, you know, Getting ice cores for those kind of long-term records is really expensive. And so they don't necessarily have a huge network of ice cores being collected all over the place willy-nilly, um, but more coordinated efforts to get these long, long boreholes out of the glaciers. And I have no idea how that works because I don't really do an Arctic, any Arctic work or tie into that. But there's definitely, you know, large individual efforts um that have to be coordinated across multiple institutions and in order to create these long-term records that are used by so many people for sure and uh, you know that's a little bit uh that that leads into something that's a little bit different but in in some ways related right because if you're collecting ice cores at regular intervals those cores exist in the uh, the national well for cores are collected by the americans it would be noaa that would uh, would uh, have oversight of those cores. They would be kept in their paleoclimatology ice core facility, whatever it is. So there is those kind of archives, like those are are long term data archives in their own right that you could go and, and well, if you got permission and had the research and did all the things, could go and um, sample and study the indicators that are in those data. So it, that's actually quite similar in a lot of ways, and and in the same way requires funding, right? Like you have to keep that facility running. You can't let the freezers thaw mm. <laughs> or, or shut off for even a minute um, because that, yeah. that would be a catastrophe. <laughs> 
so yeah ice cores and things around that are are a good example of something that's quite uh quite similar in a lot of ways and, and there are you know we could continue the, this discussion forever if we talked about just kind of keeping the lights on at some of these amazing facilities um another one jumps to mind is in england the english lake district i don't know that much about uh the specific um sort of funding structure or or who runs that i assume it is government that's always would be my assumption but i don't really know that much about the lake district and lake windermere and sort of the other lakes in that area yeah Do you not not really I, i've been there years and years ago um oh nice but um but yeah, outside of Lake Windermere being the site of the Freshwater Biology Association um, and having long records going there back to at least the 40s. Um, yeah, it's, uh, again, one of those things where I've never done any work on UK lakes, but I'm just generally aware, yeah. generally aware of it. And then I think I visited it as a tourist before I got into paleolimnology and then, uh, you know, have been seeing references to it here and there in the years since and it always comes up so oh oh oh. yep i've been there i've been to that little village you know i've had i've had a beer at that pub um uh, when when it (laughs) shows up on maps um but that that is about it uh, in terms of the connection uh with it um and then there are also equivalents on in continental europe um with places like lago maggiore in italy um that have been Ah, i've been been there you've been there oh you've been there since 1938 well that's what i'm back to so the the research yeah the water research institute or uh, i think that's probably fairly close to the english translation is quite impressive right on the shores beautiful facility uh and yeah really interesting they have a very nice library like very old library lots of data i don't know uh, it's been a few years since I was there. That was uh, when we were at the SIL meeting, I believe, in Turin, in Italy. They, we went to Verbania as a, a trip. Excursion. So be 2016. Yep, excursion. And um, yeah, really interesting to see. Jenny had been there before already when she went to the Cladocera workshop. And, uh, and yeah, really interesting. Like the one of the things that the, the tour included was to look at some of the old instruments that they had been using to sample the lake going back i guess to the 30s pretty cool cool beans yeah so it's a big wide world out there and there's lots and lots of data and lots of people have put long records together on shoestring budgets uh just scrambling to keep it going for another year another year another year and some of these records are now pushing 50 60 70 years and are invaluable storehouses for the um recognizing the changes uh, that have gone on in that time. And really, um, in many of these cases, these data sets, data sets, sometimes they're out to answer a specific question. And in many of the big cases, they are in terms of when they start off fairly big with a very defined purpose. But there are also many cases on a much smaller scale of there just being someone I don't know if necessarily the foresight is the right word, but started collecting samples of some nature and just kept doing it. And then someone else came along and looked at the record and said, well, let's keep that going on. And, um, you know, a lot of them are hugely site-specific, but you have examples of, um, I've lost the name of it now, but the Shinto 
temple in Japan that has been, you know, got a record of ice on ice off dates at the lake outside the temple dating back to 1442. That's right. Just people who like to journal, you know, just like to write down things they saw. And I wonder at what point in that record, I mean, Shinto monks probably, you know, there's a lot of records being kept about whatever farming and weather and sunspot cycles and all those kind of things. But at what point, so if they started in 1442, at what point do you think it was like, no, we got to keep this going now? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I, was it 60 years? Yeah. Was it a hundred years? Like, do you want to be the one person who goes like, nah, I don't care. It's like, and I think definitely, you know, in terms of farmer, farmer almanac type stuff, I think the limnology aspect might may, maybe vary a little bit in terms of specific records on things like ice on ice off dates. Obviously, we've covered extensively in past episodes, like you're not going to have a 500-year pH direct record simply because the concept of pH was not around 500 years ago. Um, But yeah, uh, and in all of these, you know, once the ball gets rolling enough, um, you know, the possibility of breaks in the data um, become, I guess, quite daunting. It's like, no, you've got to keep this going. This has been going for almost 600 years. You know, let's just add one more line. Yeah. But also the the thing is when you get a record that's, you know, so long, one or two year breaks don't really, you know, aren't going to sewer the value of it. So there is the ability to absorb little discrepancies or little hiccups that occur. Good example of that will be the the COVID gap right the 2020 data gap that exists in many of these records uh whether they be big elter kind of records or just people's research where they have been collecting data themselves like there is uh that's a problem but it, it, it you know the ice record going back to 1442 you won't even notice that that day that line isn't connected between 1919 and 21 are you seeing that yet now when you go to conferences like a uh like, is that being touched on yet, or is it still too early of like a long record and then a break and then a couple points after it? Is that actually being a thing yet? Not so much in conferences. I've seen it in a couple of uh, thesis um, defenses uh, recently. You know, we there's some pre data and like, oh, these, you know, we intended to do this, but we don't have those data. And then we pick them up in 21, 22 um, because, you know, those students are sort of. Many of them were delayed, so they're working their way through the system often at the end now. Um, but yeah, not, not not so much at conferences. Maybe I just haven't been paying attention. Uh, yeah. I'm sure they're there. I've, and I guess this really ties back into like callbacks from before with like the vast majority of studies that are performed uh, being having less than four years of data to begin with. A data mm-hmm. gap is, you know, on that scale is quite significant. And that is where you lean heavily on the long-term records that, you know, like their value um, has been demonstrated even more so due to the 2020 data gap. For sure. Maybe you can fill it in with something that, you know, uh, many people moved heaven and earth to keep these long-term data sets open even during COVID. Um, and and that can fill in those gaps too. Um, one, one thing that definitely comes up as you, as you think about these and go through the list and start to uh, really dive into the the breadth of these things is just how 
productive these data sets can be in terms of the research output that they uh that they influence if not directly based on them but just how uh how uh commonly referred to linked to uh, cited facilitated these data are yeah i um because in many cases the number of scientists employed at them will be relatively small to the number of academics that are piggybacking on them. And I know in places like Dorset and the ELA, uh, having worked with both of them before, you know, there's some element of putting a data request in for them to, in many ways, document the use of their data um, so that they can report back saying, you know, this, our data has been used in X number of papers, we've been requested, and here's the list, yada, yada, yada. But a lot of it is in the, in the public record as well. So they're being mm-hmm. piggybacked on in much bigger ways than that. So it's really hard to quantify exactly how useful they are. They, you know, they internally make their efforts, but the more you read within a particular discipline or particular topic question, uh, the more that um, you start to see the same couple of phrases again and again and again as, you know, these data sets buttress, um, you know, the conclusions of many others. The other thing to think about is how they, they look going forward. You know, what, uh, what does the future of these long-term data sets look like as we move into a increasingly automated and uh, autonomous world? whether those be buoys, whether those be linkages to uh, satellite platforms, whether they be networks that are connected across some sort of, you know, blockchain kind of thing, artificial intelligence, uh, generative artificial intelligence. What does monitoring look like 10 years from now, 15 years? Will these things be more common because it's you know, the, uh, the internet of things allows them to collect data, um, much more broadly and storage has become so inexpensive or at least so common, uh, in a cloud setting. Yeah, it's an, an interesting time to think about uh, the future of monitoring. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like some things become easier in the world of sensors. And I can think of, you know, like even 20 years ago, like Dorset was, starting to add um, thermistors thermistors, uh, to measure water temperatures at like hourly intervals through the ice-free season. So deploying them below a buoy. And so then you'd have, you know, full um, uh, seasonal records of water column temperature at hourly intervals. But, you know, there's some level of somebody still has to go and put the buoy in and check periodically to make sure the buoy is still hanging where it's supposed to be. Because I can definitely look at like some of these records where you see these bizarre temperature anomalies. And it's because, you know, you infer that it's because someone else has come by in a boat and said, oh, what's that? And pulled it out and left sure. it on a rock. Yeah. And so um, there will always be some artificial, you know, there'll be some artificial intelligent aspect to that to do some monitoring and data cleaning. But I think in all these, it's all... There's a large amount of, um, until we get the robots, you still need a fair number of people going out into the woods and doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The water is always hard, right? Like it's hard to connect to a cell phone signal so they can just automatically download or the AI can keep a uh, watch on the data 
uh, series to see of any anomalies that would then flag a need to send someone out as opposed to regular checks on them. Those are the kinds of technologies that are already being employed in urban settings, right? Mm -hmm. So for like traffic mitigation and for um, monitoring of street lamps and all the different kind of infrastructures, things that you get in an urban um, setting. So it's not that those technology can't be brought to bear on environmental monitoring. They definitely can and will, depending on the context. I think a question just becomes of, of how much energy and money in particular has to go into setting up those kinds of networks it makes perfect sense to have them in a city where you know saving a few minutes of people's time on traffic or not having to have someone check the light bulbs in thousands of different street lamps saves a fortune monitoring water quality and temperature is is maybe a little bit of a harder sell for those things so until they become literally ever present and and all over the place it might not be the first place those technologies are brought to bear but they they certainly could there's no reason they can't yeah you can now download those tidbit loggers on a bluetooth device like you don't even have to pull them from the water technically if you get close enough and there's also the element of um not knowing what is interesting until after the fact is at play because you know mm-hmm. i could just do my own history and like focus on uh calcium concentration of the water column that you know, 50 years ago, it wasn't really high, highly interested in terms of biological impact. It was just a component of alkalinity um, that was being measured anyway. Um, and then all of a sudden, so oh, this could be a rate limiting aspect of recovery from acid rain. And then calling up or emailing people at the ELA and Turkey Lakes and elsewhere to say, could you please do, have you willing to share a calcium record with me kind of thing i'm you know yeah. and uh, then all of a sudden it's like oh yeah no we've been measuring that we've been measuring that for decades um oh yeah now it's going down a little bit and then but then it's not until then you put all all them together that you you know it starts to make the bigger picture becomes a bit more in focus for sure i i think that that's a good example is that we're not going to eliminate the need for limnologists it just might make it a little bit easier um moving forward and hopefully that means a little bit more monitoring all right that's 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 it it. that's this arc right Uh, the arc is now done uh fantastic time to get back to our roots i guess on the next one once we decide what it is and that's right something a little bit more uh educational it's all educational informative (laughs) it's all educational informative a little bit more lecture yeah a little bit more I don't know if textbooky is the right word, but textbooky, there's the word. Yeah. Um, as a, and a little less, I don't know, rambly. Um, Excellent. But once again, thank you for listening to Core Ideas, the Paleo Limnology podcast. If you have a question or a comment or perhaps a suggestion for a future show, please send us a note. Our email address is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. And on the socials, uh, I guess we still have the Twitter handle at Core Ideas Paleo, though we don't check it much and certainly don't interact with it. The main thing we kind of move to, though, slow growing as as they can be, is Mastodon. And so you can find us there um, at Core Ideas Paleo at Mastodon.social, and we will read everything that you send us. 
An archive of most of our past episodes and show notes is maintained on our website at coreideas uh, at Uh That link is listed in our Twitter and Mastodon bios, which is the easiest way to find it. And if you're so inclined, please give us a rating, subscribe, leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you consume your favorite podcast. Those five-star ratings and comments are great, fun to read. But to be honest, we don't get that many and don't care really too much. We're just still doing this for fun. And that's it for today. But we'll be back soon. Um, not sure what we're going to be talking about, but we're done for now talking about how money fuels academic research. And we'll continue to stick to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.